Chapter 19, the Gospel of Matthew, beginning with verse 13. Read along with me. It says, Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Now we're going to stop and park here for a little bit this morning. But remember, he's already shown us something that Jesus had said with regard to the kingdom of God as it pertains to the attitude, the humbleness, the character of little children. In chapter 18, from verse 1 and a few verses following, he said pretty much the same thing that he's saying here to his disciples. He said it there to his disciples also. It wasn't that long ago that he had spoken those things to his disciples. They should realize that Jesus was saying something of great value to them as well as to little children. He had said there in chapter 18 that of such is the kingdom of heaven. Little children, you must come as a child, Jesus had said. Well, not childish, but childlike. That was his focus. That was his emphasis. And he said that they represented humility. Because what little child is going to be proud of his or her accomplishments? There aren't very many who would say that I've done great conquering things in the world in my two years of existence. You come as a little child, he said. Lay aside all of the things that you have accomplished, all the things that you have been able to do in this life, all of your wealth, all of your possessions, all of your intellect, all of your methods of doing things in the world to get ahead. He said, get rid of all of that and come as a child. And if you do so, you will find God's love. And you will find the peace that passes all understanding. You will find eternal life. And he had said very plainly again, Assuredly, I say to you in verse 3 of chapter 18, unless you are converted, that means unless you turn from who you are, from what you are, to what or who you should be, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means Enter the kingdom of God. Those are very, very strong words to anyone who as an adult thinks himself or herself to be of particular worth to God. None of us are of any worth to God. To be honest with you, we are worthless. And that's why he decided, I better do something to save them because they're so worthless, they're so valueless, but I love them anyway. They're my creation. And I want them to know my love. So God made for all mankind that opportunity to come to Him by faith. And since He's a holy God, and we are not holy, He had to make a provision for us to be able to bypass that which affected our ability to come into His presence. He exchanged His own righteousness for our sins. That's a great exchange, but you have to accept it by faith in order to receive it and enter into the kingdom of heaven as a child. Children have a tendency to believe what their parents tell them, mostly, until they reach a certain age, and then they start to question. But then they're no longer little children. They're not any longer childlike. They become like you and I. That's unfortunate. Well, it truly is. 
If only we could remain as little children all the days of our lives, in the sense that they are humble, they are willing to listen, they don't have preconceived ideas, they just simply receive the love and love back. That's a good thing. So Jesus is here in chapter 19 reflecting on that which he had spoken earlier. And the reason that he's doing this is because now he's on his way to Jerusalem to die on the cross. And he's with a bunch of people, a multitude of people have gathered around him. And he's in the territory just outside of the region of Judea on the western, eastern side of the Jordan River in a territory known as Perea, which is Herod Antipas's territory. He's in dangerous territory. They don't want him. They don't like him. They are trying to get rid of him. The Pharisees and scribes had come to him and tried to trap him as we looked at the last time together. But Jesus is there, and as he's teaching the multitudes, some of the parents with little children draw close to him and they bring their little children to him. And, of course, because he is a loving, loving Savior, and he sees those precious little children for what they truly are, he invites them to be brought to him, and he puts them on his lap, and he embellishes, loves them, and he just is so blessed to have them be there. And so he says, let the children come. The reason he had to say that was because his own disciples were trying to get those parents back away from Jesus, to take the children back away from Jesus. And Jesus said, no, 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 you're missing the point again. I don't know how many times Jesus had to tell his disciples, you got it all wrong, but they did, and they certainly did this time. In fact, in Mark's gospel, Mark tells us that Jesus was very displeased with his disciples for having done what they were doing. Again, verse 13 and 14, he laid hands on, on, on them to pray for them, but the disciples rebuked them, meaning apparently the parents, not the children, But Jesus said in verse 14, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. He's driving home a point. You don't get to heaven on your own merit. You don't get to heaven because you've done great works for God. You get to heaven on the basis of one thing and one thing alone. It's by grace through faith, the Apostle Paul tells us. Not that which you have done. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. It's a gift of God. Grace through faith. Faith in Christ, in what Christ alone has done. That's how you get in. And the only reason that you can accept that is if you accept it as a child with childlike faith. So when he says, of such is the kingdom of heaven, he's not saying that only children are going to be in heaven. He's just saying you've got to come to God as a child, no matter what your age, no matter what your accomplishments. Well, that then has an impact on what we think about God, doesn't it? What we think about God's plan. What do we think about God's purpose? And how is it then that we can come? Well, we're not told for sure whether this next portion of Scripture is presented because the one in particular that is going to be asking questions 
about salvation, about eternal life? Was he there listening to Jesus when he was talking about, let the children come unto me? Perhaps. Perhaps he came at a slightly later time. But regardless, this particular individual that we'll be looking at is a Jewish, rich, young ruler. We don't see that in its entirety here in this gospel, but when you connect Luke's gospel and Mark's gospel with what Matthew says, we find that he was indeed very wealthy, and he was a ruler according to Luke, and he was young. So that's why we call this particular portion of the scripture the story of the rich young ruler. And it's where we are going to camp for the rest of our time together this morning. It says in verse 16, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Notice his emphasis on good. Good teacher. Good things. Here's a Jew who believes in God. But he's not satisfied with the life that he's been leading or with the the consequences of what he has done, although he doesn't seem to be that bad a person, morally speaking, but he's aware of the fact that there's something not yet quite right. Something is missing. There's an emptiness in his soul that he's very hungry to fill with some kind of good things. And so he comes to this one who has been going throughout all of the Galilean region and now in this region of Perea, proclaiming the gospel message, and he wants to know, because he sees this individual and all that he has done, thinking that he is a good man, a rabbi who knows things that many others just did not have an understanding of, He recognized that no man spoke like this man did. He recognized that there was nobody who performed those kinds of miracles that this man had been performing. And so he's coming to him and he says, Good teacher, what must I do? What good thing must I do? In Mark's Gospel, Mark puts it this way, What must I do to inherit everlasting life? Inheritance comes in only one way, as far as I know. You receive an inheritance upon the death of that which is your parent who may or may not have left you with something that you can treat as an inheritance. An inheritance is given, it's not earned. An inheritance comes from the parent to the son or daughter because of death. So he's saying, what good thing must I do to inherit? Implies that that inheritance that he's looking for isn't going to come from his heritage. It's got to come from some other source. And since he didn't know what that other source was, he confused the idea of inheritance as any Jew would in that day because they believed it was required of them to do good things in order to enter into the kingdom. He considered that entering into the kingdom as an opportunity to receive the inheritance that was promised to him as a Jew, and he wanted to know how. How is this going to happen? Well, there's another thing that is most interesting here when he says, Good teacher. Almost every Jew, almost every rabbi of the day, including Jesus, considered that only God is good. 
And so Jesus picks up on that first question, or the first statement that the man makes, good teacher. And before he answers the second part of that, he responds by asking the young man a question. Verse 17 says, So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. No one is good but one, and that is God. No one. Not even Jesus? Well, wait a minute. Is that what Jesus was saying? I'm not God, so I'm not good? I don't think so. I believe that what Jesus was saying to this man is, there's no one but God that is good, so if you call me good, is that because you recognize something in me that reminds you of the God that you serve? Are you considering the possibility that I am God in the flesh, coming to you to offer salvation? Are you coming to me because you see God in me? There's none good but God. So he's pressing the young ruler on this concept of goodness to, I believe, bring to that man's attention who is it that is there with him talking now. Why do you call me good? There is only one good. But, he says, if you want to enter into life, here's the answer to your question. Keep the commandments. There are 613 commandments given in the Old Testament Scriptures in the books of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. 613 of them. Of course, we are familiar with the Ten Commandments, most of us. But he goes well beyond the Ten Commandments in that discourse that Moses brings 613 direct commands of God that the Jewish people had to obey. And Jesus here in this passage says, okay, if you want to enter into the kingdom, if you think you have to do something, this is what you've got to do. Obey all the commandments. Simple, huh? If anyone could keep all the commandments, that means he could indeed enter into God's presence. But it's not that Jesus believed that this man or any man could ever possibly have kept all those commandments. He's setting this as a bar that is too high for him to get over. I don't know if any of you have ever tried doing a high jump or pole vault. I'm convinced that I could never get any much more than maybe one foot off the ground. And I've seen athletes, they are very, very good at getting up over the bar. And when they get up over the bar, they're not finished yet. They raise the bar another couple inches and then they have to try again. Until the very last of them is eliminated, but that last one who had the greatest height, if all the others are eliminated before that person, he or she wins. Same with pole vaulting. That's a scary thing to me. I've seen people with a pole vault. The pole is in their hands, resting on their shoulder, and they start running down the track, and they place that pole into that point where it has to land in order for the pole to stick, and they begin their climb up over the top of the pole that's on the bar. It's 14 feet or however high it was, and their pole snaps, and they fall to the ground. They didn't make it. That's me. That's you. 
you won't make it. The bar is set too high and your pole vault will never ever attain that which would give you success. Everybody would lose. Why? Because God deliberately set the pole too high. That's what it is with regard to the law of God. He made it so that none of us could ever, ever obey every single one of those 613 commands of God all the days of our lives. James tells us very simply, if you miss it in one point, you've disobeyed all the law. Wait, I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. I've never stolen. I've never, 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 never imagined having to go before a holy God and find out that you did. Oh, you did. Yes, you did that. Yes, you did. He keeps record. And whether you think you were perfect, He knows that you were not. There's no way, no way, that any of us could ever assume perfection. So, after Jesus says, keep the commandments, look at what the response is of this rich young ruler. Verse 18, he says, He, the rich young ruler, said to him, Which ones? <laughs> Which ones? Jesus said, Obey the commands. That was clear. Keep the commandments. This guy's saying, Okay, which ones do you mean? Well, Jesus meant all of them. But this guy wants to know how far he can push the envelope. He knows that in his mind, there's a line drawn on the sand, and he can go only so far, and if he goes over that line, he's sinned. That's the opinion of the majority of Jews in his day. The law was given to tell you how much you can do, but don't go any further, because if you do, you're going to be a sinner. But what the Word of God really says is, no matter what you do, you are a sinner. So this young man thinks, well, okay, if I'm to do all of those commands, uh, which ones do I need most to do in order to be saved? There must be some flexibility with God here, isn't there? There must be some room for, well, I made a mistake, but... And God says, no. If you are going to be obedient to the commands of God, you must obey all of the commands. And Jesus didn't make it any easier for us to obey those, Remember the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, followed by the message that Jesus gave with regard to the heart. He said, oh, you've not committed adultery? Think again. Whenever you think about those things in your heart, you've already committed the sin. Ouch. Do not bear false witness. That just simply means don't lie. Do not covet. The Apostle Paul as a Pharisee, was a very strict follower of all of the commands of God, and he spent his life trying his best. In fact, at one time, as a Pharisee, he considered himself to be one of the best. That's pride, by the way. He thought himself to be perfect as a Jew, following the commands of God. And then he got saved. But Paul rationalized in his mind that as a Jew, he was as good as anybody else, and as good as anybody else could be, then he was in the sight of man perfect, but not in the sight of God. He came to a conclusion. 
he realized after studying the Word of God, after having been saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, that no, he didn't keep all the law. In fact, he looked through the Ten Commandments and he could honestly say, I've never done that, I've never done that, I've never did that. But, he said, when I got to the last commandment, thou shalt not covet. He said, then it slew me. In other words, Paul knew that his righteousness was as filthy rags. As perfect as he thought he was, he fell apart against that one command of God, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. Covetousness was a problem for him at one time in his life. He recognized that as a sin, finally realizing that I can't keep all the law. I never did. I never will be able to. That's why he was so emphatic when he said, the just shall live by faith. That's why he would say, oh, wretched man, who shall deliver me from the body of this this death? And then turn around and say, I thank my God through Christ Jesus. And there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The devil will try to condemn you, but God doesn't. This young man came to Jesus. I believe he was earnestly seeking for an answer that would cause him to realize how it is indeed possible for him. And Jesus gave him a direct response to his question based upon what Jesus knew about this particular individual. And he began by saying, okay, just do the whole law. Keep the commandments. So the guy asks, okay, well, which ones? And I'm wondering whether Jesus was thinking, if he doesn't get this, he's going to walk away. But Jesus gives him another statement that all of us must pay attention to. When he asks which ones, it opens the door for Jesus to say these things. Verse 18, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. These are five of the Ten Commandments. And one more that he gives, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's not one of the Decalogue, Ten Commandments. It's another commandment that God gives among the 613 commandments, but it's one of the most important commandments of all. That God doesn't actually give you on the two tablets of stone, but He gives through Moses while they're in the wilderness. And it's such an important command that Jesus makes sure that we understand and that this young ruler understood, that His disciples understood, that this is central to all of the commands Elsewhere, Jesus said, there is actually only two things that you need to be concerned with. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first tablet of stone, the commands of our relationship with God. Thou shalt not have any other God before me. I am the Lord your God, and you shall not make any uh, images. You shall not do anything that will offend your God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like this also, he said. Love your neighbor as yourself. So what he's saying is that command covers all the other commands of the Ten Commandments. Jesus is always very specific, even though it may seem vague. If you look at what he's saying and try to understand from the bottom of your heart that 
he is God and he knows what he's talking about, then you shall have no trouble understanding what Jesus is conveying to this person here as he's meeting with him. Which commandments, he says, here you go. Do these things, your relationships with other men, and you'll be okay. He doesn't even talk about God part of the commandments, the relationship between us and God. It's implied in what he said later. But here he's saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now that should possibly have begun to cause that young man to think about his relationships with his neighbors. He's a rich young ruler. Has he met the needs of those around him who aren't as well off as he is? Has he been willing to help those who are oppressed? Has he shared his wealth? Has he been willing to help others in great need? Love your neighbor as yourself. Doesn't that imply such things? Of course it does. And especially to a Jew, they knew that that was so. You can go through all of the Psalms and Proverbs and see so many references to the need of those who have to help those who have not. And the reward would be great wealth, treasure. Gold and silver aren't to be pursued, but God says through His Word that if you do good things to others, then the reward is going to be known by you and you will be known by others as one who has done good things for others. Now, the Jews in Jesus' day and also other times, perhaps even today, the wealthiest of Jews consider themselves to be the holiest of Jews. Why? Because God blessed them with great wealth. And everybody around them who wasn't as well off as they weren't really doing as much for God as they themselves were doing. They patted themselves on the back for being good, faithful Jews. And that God has rewarded them for their faithfulness with great riches. That was certainly a wrong attitude. Proverbs... I love the way that it's stated in one of the Proverbs. Give me neither riches nor poor. Make me neither rich nor poor. The reason, if I'm poor, I might take something that's not mine. If I'm rich... I may not help somebody else who isn't. Either extreme from that proverb implies that you should never desire to be poor or rich, but just trust the Lord for what you are, what you have, and where you uh, have been, and leave it up to Him. Walk in faith that He provides all you need, and don't be desirous of something that you do not have. Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus said. The young man, verse 20, said to him, Well, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? I'm impressed with the guys being able to say this to Jesus and believe it to be true. Well, perhaps it was. The Jewish custom was to be, at the age of 13 or so, Bar mitzvah, you enter into adulthood. 
And during that ceremony of bar mitzvah, you as a young lad are committing yourself to be under God's authority instead of your father's authority. Up until that time in your life, you are needing to be under the authority of your father, your heavenly father, no. Your earthly father, yes. But at that point and from that point on, you are to be under the authority of God the Father. And listen, this young ruler believed himself to be perfect in his obedience to all the commands of the Lord, at least since his bar mitzvah. It's very doubtful that he was thinking all the way back to the very day of his birth. Although it could be possible, perhaps he thought that well of himself, thinking that I've been doing such a good thing in my life for everybody that I come in contact with. I've treated them fairly. I've not done anything that would harm anybody else. I was talking to an individual yesterday about the things of the Lord. He's dying of cancer. But he told me, I've never harmed anybody that didn't deserve it. Whoa. Yeah, that's, that's good, <laughs> but it's not good enough. Perhaps this young man thought the same. I've never harmed anybody that deserved it, so therefore I'm good. All right? It seems to be his attitude. He thought himself to be moral, morally perfect, and yet he wasn't. And Jesus now will point that out to him. So Jesus, in verse 21, hits the nail on the head tells us, Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So Jesus is saying, okay, rich young ruler, you're not as perfect as you think you are and here's why. You're trusting in your riches. And that trust in riches disqualifies you. If you want to come into the presence of a holy God, young man, sell it all. And then the final answer that Jesus gives to this man, that which is required of him, is to come and follow Jesus. That was a command to that particular individual. I want to make sure that we understand that the Bible does not condemn wealth at all. Abraham was one of the wealthiest men in the whole of the creation. David was a wealthy man. Solomon was a wealthy man. There were many wonderful men who were followers of God, and yes, they made mistakes in their lives. Yes, they did sin, but they were God's chosen. They were not chosen because of their wealth, but their wealth didn't prevent them from being chosen. God blessed them in their wealth. So God doesn't condemn wealth in itself. He condemns trusting in your wealth. Paul tells us the love of money is a root of all evil. The love of money, not money itself. Money can be good. It can be used for good things, and it is in the kingdom of God. One of the things that Jesus says here is that if you 
are wanting to be perfect, go, sell what you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. He's not saying anything about giving that up. He's saying it'll be better if it is in the right place. For that young man who was a rich young ruler, that was something that he needed to hear. You're trusting in your riches, and if you're going to continue trusting in your riches, you will never enter in. But if you are willing to sell it all and turn away from that which you have clung to all your life and then follow me, you'll have treasure in heaven and eternal life, that which you are seeking. If you are truly seeking it, you can do what I'm asking you to do. Let that sink in. If you truly want eternal life, then you should be willing to do what Jesus asks of you to do. So what's he asking us? Believe. He went to the cross. He died for your sins and mine. And the purpose of that death was so that you could enter in by faith. And I could enter in by faith in His finished work. Not in what we are able to do, but in what He has done. Christianity is all about what God has done for us. All the other religions of the world are what man can do for God. Think about it. That's fruitless. That's not going to accomplish anything. If you realize that God is holy and you are not, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter how you think you are doing in this life that might seem good to you, as far as God is concerned, it is filthy rags. Ow! That's painful to many people. It shouldn't be. Because how much better is eternal life than anything that we can accomplish in this world? Matthew's writing this gospel. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was very rich. But when Jesus came to his table where he was collecting taxes, Jesus said to him, the very same words that he said to this, said to this rich young ruler, Come and follow me. When Matthew heard those words, he got up from his table and he never went back to being a tax collector. He left everything. He gave it up, all of it. He's asking this young, rich ruler to do the same. Look at the response. Verse 22, But when the young man heard that, saying, He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We know nothing more of this young man's story Nowhere else in the Word of God does it give us any information about whether or not he might have come to Christ. Perhaps he was in Jerusalem when Jesus was hanging on the cross. Perhaps he'd heard about the resurrection of Jesus. Perhaps he did come after this scene to believe in the Son of God. We don't know. But Jesus, as he watched him depart... It must have been a sad thing for him to see. And he says to his disciples in verse 23, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Only because that rich man trusts in his or her riches. 
rich man or rich woman. It's easier to enter into the eye of a needle if you were a camel. Think about that. Now, there is a story that is told, and it's not true, but it is something that people hear. There was a gate in Jerusalem that was a small gate that after the uh, regular business hours, they would leave that gate open so that merchants could still enter into the city at night. But their camels could only enter in by dropping to the knees, taking their load off of them, and kind of squeezing through that gate. Well, it's an interesting picture, but it really has nothing to do with what Jesus is saying here. And as far as we can tell, there is no evidence of that kind of gate in Jerusalem. It's a made-up story as far as we know. Jesus is talking about a real eye of a real needle, a sewing needle. He could have said it's impossible for a man to enter through that means, to pass through the eye of a needle. He could have used any other example. He said that as an exaggerated expression of the truth of what he has been saying about how difficult it is for a rich man who trusts in his riches to enter in. In verse 25, the disciples understood what he was saying. They said, when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? That's crazy. How is anybody going to be saved if that's the case? Jesus, you're saying something that's way beyond anybody's ability. Verse 26, but Jesus. But Jesus. I'm always impressed with the buts of the Bible. Most of the time it's but God. And when the Word of God says but God, it means that there's something else you need to know. And here it's but Jesus, and He is the Son of God. So we could put, but God looked at them and said to them, but Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I'd like you to underline that. I'd like you to memorize that. I'd like you to quote that on a daily basis. With men, it is impossible, but With God, all things are possible. Not some things, not it might be possible, but it is possible. With God, all things are possible. Even that which seems to be absolutely impossible for mankind. The disciples understood what Jesus was saying. They had just said, how can this be? Who can be saved? With God, it is possible. Salvation is not possible with men. It's not possible for anyone to enter into eternal life by his or her own abilities, intelligence, merits. I've said it over and over again. I hope that has sunk in very, very deeply into every heart here this morning. What Jesus is saying here, that's all impossible. There's only one way. With God, he makes a way. With God, it is, it is possible. How is it possible? Because He has made a way. What is that way? Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to enter into God's presence except by Him. 
Now, his disciples still aren't yet understanding everything they should understand. So, as was the custom of Peter, he steps up and says, verse 27, Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we've left all and followed you, therefore what shall we have? What's Peter thinking of? Hey, we left everything. Just like Jesus said to this young ruler to sell all that you have, we did that, we've, we've, done, that. we've done that, what's in it for me? What will we receive? <laughs> Peter, eternal life. He's not quite gotten that. He's still thinking in this world, what will we get? He's thinking when we get to Jerusalem, Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David and we are going to reign with him. But what is it exactly going to look like? Peter's looking forward to that, not the other. Verse 28, Jesus says, So Jesus said to them, all of the disciples, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, that's another way of saying in the millennial reign of Christ, when he is reigning on the throne of David, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Yes, Peter, you're going to have a reward in the kingdom it will be established. It's not going to happen yet, Peter. It's not going to be there yet, John. When we get to Jerusalem, I'm going there for a different reason. And you're going to lay that out for them very clearly in chapter 20 and following. But here he's saying there's coming a day when, yes, you will be rewarded. And you, you twelve, you disciples that I have chosen, with the exception of one, will sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. There's only one place in the Word of God where I see that as being referred to in the Old Testament. And there aren't very many who actually would refer to this passage that I'm about to give you, but I believe it makes for a very likely explanation of what Jesus is saying here to his disciples. Psalm 122, verse 5. Thrones are set there for judgment. He's talking about in Jerusalem. Thrones are set there for judgment. The thrones of the house of David. Now in the history of the Jews, there was only one throne in Jerusalem. And that throne was David's throne. Solomon sat on it. The sons of Solomon and all of the descendants after of the Jewish people followed and sat on that throne. And Jesus will indeed sit on that throne. But this is the only place in the Word of God where it refers to other thrones. And I believe that Jesus is referring to that in Psalm 122 as going to be the place where the followers of Christ, those who were given this particular authority by the Lord, will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, Jesus believed those twelve tribes existed in his day, and they did. And they will. And there's coming a day when all of the things that have been spoken of with regard to the kingdom age will be indeed fulfilled by him. And we're getting close. I believe we'll see them seated on, seated on the thrones 
that had been made for them. Now, of course, Judas will be accepted from that great honor. Somebody else will sit on that 12th throne. But they will be occupied and they will be visible. I'm convinced of it. It's there in the Word of God. Verse 29 completes this portion of Scripture that we'll look at today. He says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. That rich young ruler wanted to know how to inherit eternal life. God, the Son, was there to lead the way. And He's still here in this place to lead the way for anyone who would want to know. How do I inherit eternal life? By faith. For He says in verse 30, but many who are first will be last. And the last, first. You think yourself to be wise? You think yourself to be able to accomplish what needs to be done to enter into His kingdom? Think again. Come as a child. Come by faith. Forget whatever it is that's holding you from this. Eternal life is far better. 